The Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 43, speaking of the gospel happening in relationships. So Genesis 43 is at the end of the book of Genesis. The, book, the beginning of the book of Genesis starts with Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and God telling them from now on, your relationship with me and your relationship with each other, your relationship with the environment is going to be fractured. Then sure enough, in chapter 4, the first thing we see happening is fractured relationship, right? Cain and Abel, who are brothers, uh, one of them murders the other. But at the end of Genesis, we see redemption. We see that same relationship, the brother relationship, uh, repaired because of the gospel. And uh, that's uh, part of our story here from uh, Genesis 43. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? You remember that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt and then they meet up years later and they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. His brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. So why are they dismayed? They're dismayed because evil in this world gets repaid with evil. Like if you do somebody something wrong to somebody, they're going to mistreat you back. That's the way it works. Except for when the gospel happens. And then when you're mistreated, the gospel works the grace of Jesus Christ and love and forgiveness for others in your heart. So Joseph, whose brothers had a choice, are we going to kill the guy or are we going to sell him into slavery? They choose the lesser of two evils, selling him to slavery. Now they meet him again, and they know for a fact, because this is the way the world works, they're going to get theirs, especially because he's got loads of political power. But instead, what does Joseph do? I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the gospel. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And that, and then his brothers talked with him. I'm sorry, after that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the sermon text. It's actually the epistle reading from uh, last week. But I wasn't here last week. And Dr. Weiss preached on the Old Testament text. And I didn't want to miss this. And so this is actually the text for last week, but we're going to talk about it this week. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles, he means. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Whether then, it was the, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Can I preach uh, uh, two sermons to you? I, uh, I hate to do this. I committed to doing, I committed to doing the First Corinthians text through uh, Epiphany. And then when you get to the readings, like the Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading, they're almost too good not to say something about them, especially to us where we're at in our culture right now. But they're related, of course. I mean, so Jesus says, Jesus says in the Gospel reading this morning, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, he says the same thing that Joseph is doing in Genesis, which is this. If you get struck on the cheek and you don't strike back, if people ask to borrow money from you and you give it to them and don't expect it back from them with interest, you're actually living out the life of the gospel. You're living the most subversive life of possible. And, and it's not because, oh, you're being really, really super nice. And so it's really nice to people when you're, when you don't retaliate or die. This is not Hinduism. This is not some sort of like, uh, you know, absorb people's anger and don't return it to them. And so you'll add a little bit more love and peace to the world, which by, by the way is probably true as far as it goes. This is actually deeper than that. This is the gospel by saying my money doesn't belong to me. My cheek doesn't belong to me. Even in the case of Joseph, my personal freedom doesn't belong to me. It's God's to do whatever he wants with. This is saying, I understand that the gracious God who created everything is in charge of the whole world and is working out all things to rescue his creation back to themselves. And if I can be a part of that, and what that means is people are going to misuse me, I will gladly do that for the sake of the gospel. And then there's all kinds of ramifications, right? Like lending money, the way we, the way we treat each other on social media, 
The way we think about political power as tools to get what we done, what we want done. Instead of like Joseph, political power is used to forgive people. That's so like so crazy. If you knew a politician who was like telling told his or her constituents, like, I want you to vote for me. I'm actually not going to try and do what I want. I'm going to try to forgive people. That person would get laughed off of the dais. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Anyway, so that's sermon number one. This next sermon, uh, unfortunately, is going to be quite longer than that one. And I apologize in advance for that. The sermon on the epistle reading um, from 1 Corinthians. So uh, Paul is talking about um, resurrection. He's been talking about spiritual gifts. This isn't some sort of like random now. Okay, so spiritual. Now let's talk about resurrection. Uh, remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. Tongues are going to cease. Prophecy is going to cease. Knowledge is going to cease. But when that which is per- that which is perfect comes, the spiritual gifts will have got us where where we need to be. We will no longer need them. The goal towards which our spiritual gifts are directed, the goal towards which the life of the church is directed, is the return of Christ. Not in some sort of escapist thing. Like we just need Jesus to come back to it so we can, we can stop like living this horrible, on this end of the spectrum, mundane on this end of the spectrum existence. Actually, our lives now are precursors to, are the advance guard of Jesus' second coming. We are living the life of the spiritual gifts, pushing forward towards new heavens and the new earth. As I said a few weeks ago, pulling the new heavens and the new earth, at least a slice of them, into Glen Carbon right now. But the main goal is this final goal when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And 1 Corinthians 15 is about that. But to talk about the, to talk about our resurrection from the dead, Paul first of all needs to talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which is what he does in the, the reading that we had for today, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let me point out a couple things to you here about verses 3 and 4. So first of all, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, he's going to say three sort of like creedal facts here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He uses the phrase, anybody who writes knows that this is the case. Like, repetitiveness is not good. It's clunky. You know, I, I wrote a letter to somebody recently and uh, I used the word ongoing three times in the course of a three-paragraph letter. And on as I was looking back through the letter, I thought, this is ridiculous. I Every time I turn around in this letter, I'm saying the word ongoing. So you edit it out so it doesn't say ongoing so much. Paul, though, clearly being clunky here. In accordance with scriptures, he says it twice. And the reason why is because, I mean, Paul is a good writer. He's uh, being intentionally clunky. He's trying to point us to the fact that Christ's death and resurrection were in accordance with Scripture. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean in accordance with Scripture? In accordance with the Bible, pr- primarily when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians of the Old Testament, right? The, the, the New Testament has not yet been written down and collected into a canon. He does not mean that there are texts in the Old Testament that you should look for that says... The Messiah is going to die and rise from the dead. Uh, if there are those texts, those are good texts. Like Isaiah 53 kind of comes close to that a little bit. But that's not primarily what he means. What he means is this. The Old Testament tells a story. And the story it tells purports to be the story of everything. 
the story of the whole universe. Now, it doesn't tell every little detail of everybody's life, but it tells the big picture story of a God who created a universe in order to manifest his love, which he has within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In that universe, he created beings designed to reflect him intentionally. Human beings. Those human beings rebelled against him and caused the universe to fall, to crumble. As we, as I mentioned to you early, earlier, we fractured the universe. God comes up with a plan to rescue that universe. Within that story, God becomes a human being, dies, and rises from the dead. That's the main part of the story. That is the great capital PT plot twist. That's the great turn, turn the, the, the gears of the story of the universe begin to spin and turn when Jesus becomes a human being and rises from the dead. The entire history of every single human being, of every single square inch of this planet, of every single square inch of this universe hinges upon this event. That's what he means by, by saying the gospel is the Son of God died and rose from the dead. By the way, let me do a commercial for reading the Bible. This is why it's important for you and me to be reading our Bible so that we constantly have in our mind the framework which only makes sense of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection only makes sense within the story of the incomplete, the meta narrative, the complete story of the universe contained in the Bible. Otherwise, it's just sort of like a freak show. I had um, a professor in uh, a seminary, at Covenant Seminary, Dan Doriani, who told me about uh, a, a camping trip he had taken with a friend of his who's not a believer. And in the course of this you know, campfire conversations, he tried to convince him that Jesus rose from the dead. And he like hit him with all the least strobel proofs, right? I mean, he was like, so this, you know, there was the swoon theory that he passed out. But clearly this doesn't happen. Crucifixion's almost always fatal unless somebody's removed from the cross immediately. Uh, there's the stolen body theory, which and he goes through the reasons why that's not true. There's the mass hallucination theory and the reasons why that's not true. And he says at the end of, at the end of it, his friend looks at, looks at him across the campfire and says, okay, I believe it. He rose from the dead. Stuff happens. And his friend, his, his friend says, I read a story recently about this armadillo that they found in Texas that had two heads. Weird stuff happens sometimes. Right. So all that to say this, outside of the framework of the Bible, the story of a guy dying and rising from the dead is just sort of a weird freak thing that you can either say, no way that that happened. Or maybe it happened. Sometimes stuff happens. But what Paul is trying to get you and me to do is to see this event as the actual center point of human history. It is, the, it is the centerpiece of God's plan to rescue his creation. It's not just this sort of like weird, crazy event. It's God's plan to fix me and you. And it's the thing, we'll see this next week. It is the event out of which flows the power that guides you and I on our mission here in Glen Carbon and St. James Lutheran Church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not, here's another way that you can like sort of mistake it if you see it outside of the framework. As, and this is the kind of thing that Christians would say. Oh, that's great. I'm glad Jesus didn't die. It's good, you know, that's a, that's a good ending to that story about his death. You know, he died for our sins, but then he didn't stay dead because, you know, that's really good. Or maybe even like, well, that really proves that he's God. Both of those things, I'm not saying those aren't true, but if you don't see those as part of the entire meta narrative, 
you'll miss the great importance of the resurrection, which is God cutting through our reality and turning it into his reality. I, I believe that there is a piece of fascia or soffit that's loose out there and banging against the side of the church. It is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't be disturbed by that banging. Uh, just let it go. Okay. Uh, so uh, that's what I wanted to say about verses 3 and 4. Actually, one more thing. That little line in there that he was buried. And we say this in the Apostles' Creed too, don't we? Uh, is it actually really important for the gospel? Paul almost always talks about Jesus' death and resurrection But then here you have in the middle of that, he was buried. Okay, so he was buried. Actually, what Paul is emphasizing here is that this is not some sort of like, and you will hear Christians talk about Jesus' resurrection like this. Like when Jesus, do you remember a couple years ago in the New York Times, and this is what happens when you uh, cut staffing and you get rid of your religious reporters and stick somebody from the city desk on a religion story. The New York Times two years ago said Easter is the celebration, it's the Christian celebration of Jesus going to heaven after he died. Well, this is actually not true. Uh, Easter is the celebration of Jesus' actual physical body rising from the dead. He's on the cross. The trauma of that physical event causes his heart to stop beating. He's laid in the tomb, and there's a point at which his dead, cold, stiffening, lifeless body, the heart starts to beat in it again, and the neurons start to fire. And his eyes open, and he sucks in a first gasp of oxygen, and he stands up, and he walks out, and he gets something to eat because he's hungry. Jesus' resurrection is an incredibly visceral, physical event. And Paul emphasizes that by saying, it's actually... It's not this psychological or spiritual like his soul goes up to be with, with, with his father in heaven. No, he is actually his dead body gets up and moves around, right? This is super important, and here's why it's important. It's because uh, there's two things that I want to emphasize here. First of all, resurrection is physical reality. It's a physical event. And as a physical event, it can be verified in the normal way that you and I verify history. There are certain rules that we use, whether you're a historian, and and most of you aren't like official historians, but we all do this as amateur historians. We verify events in the past using different uh, mechanisms. One is cause and effect. You see an effect, and you work backwards in that mind to find out what the cause was. And, And we do this with all sorts of things. We do this with, like, you hear a banging outside, right? I, I haven't looked out there yet this morning, although I parked out there. I didn't look up. This morning, there's a banging outside on the walls. Uh, what is it? Uh, it's probably a piece of siding or a piece of fascia that's banging. I mean, this is just a guess. Do I know this for certain? No, it's possible that somebody is sitting on the roof banging the side of the building with a shovel. It's possible maybe that it's the Holy Spirit who has desi- decided at this moment to manifest himself by banging on the side of our building. Those are possibilities. They're highly unlikely, though. I think it's a 95% certainty that it's a piece of siding or fascia that's banging out there. That's what we do. If you look at World War II and you ask yourself the question, why, why did World War II happen? You can work back from those effects to look at different causes. Germany was shamed because of the massive amount of reparations assigned to them by the Allies at the end of World War I and the resulting economic destruction that that caused. Many Germans, including Hitler, mistakenly blamed the Jews for Germany's 
somewhat premature surrender at the end of uh, World War I. All these things sort of work forwards to make sense. And if somebody comes along and says to you, World War II started because, I don't know, you know, pick a weird reason, because aliens in the form of German soldiers attacked Poland, you would say, no, that's not true because there's actually more legitimate causes. This is what Paul is doing here. He's saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And just like World War II, just like a bang on the side of the building, you can work back from what's happening now, from the effects to get back to the cause. And so here's what he says. Jesus rose from the dead. Look at verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, or uh, Peter. Then to the 12, the other apostles, the immediate apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother. And then to the rest of the apostles. And what Paul is saying is this. Do you really, do you want to know if Jesus rose from the dead or not? Like, here's a bunch of people who saw him. You should go ask him. This is the way history works. You interview people. You get stories. And now some of you are saying, but what if they lied? What if they're lying? What are mistaken? What if they really didn't see Jesus rise from the dead? Those 500 plus people. And this is where you can do the whole historical cause and effect thing, right? Why would they lie? People lie because there's benefit to them. There's power to be had from it. You lie so that you can control other people. You lie to get money. You lie to acquire property. You lie to make yourself look good in front of other people. Did any of these things happen to any of these 500 plus people? Did they get money from this? No. Did they get political power from this? Heck no. Did they get, did they look better in people's eyes? No, everybody thought that they were insane. What do we say about this? Something happened that made them tell this story that they stuck to, even though James, for instance, here in just a few years is going to get killed for telling this story. There's a, there's a New Testament theologian that I like. I might have mentioned this to, you, to some of you before named Ed Sanders. He's not a Christian. In fact, he describes himself as a secularized Protestant. Like he grew up in a Methodist church. He's, he's now secularized. He doesn't believe in supernatural events. He doesn't believe in virgin births and uh, miraculous creations of universes and things like that. He's an historian at Duke and he's a religious historian. And he wrote this book and it's a good book. You should read this. It's interesting. It's called, uh, the historical figure of Jesus. And in that, the last chapter of that book, he examines the resurrection accounts. And the conclusion that he comes to as an historian is, Something happened there. I can't, any, any way that I can construct that, Je- any, any sort of hypothesis that I have that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like crashes on the rocks of historical cause and effect. There's no reason to explain why these people would continue telling this story, even when they're told we're going to behead you or burn you alive or feed you to the lions if you continue saying that you saw Jesus rise from the dead. Except that, and he says at the end of the day, well, I'll, I'll give you an exact quote. He says, the only conclusion is that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences. This is, in my judgment, a fact, although he doesn't believe in it. But there's no way to get around it. It's a physical event that can be verified historically. Not in a sort of like 100% provable. There's nothing that's 100% provable. But in the way that you normally make sense of your life, whether it's an historical event from the past or banging on the side of the building. Now, why doesn't Sanders believe in it, though? Even though he himself says it must have happened, they must have seen the resurrected Christ, he chooses not to believe in it because, so the first thing is is that the resurrection is a physical event, historically verifiable. 
The second fact of the resurrection is this, though. Even though it's a physical reality, it can only be, it can only be believed by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul here says in the next verse. Look at verse 8. Last of all, Jesus appeared to me as to one untimely born. He uses the Greek word for miscarried baby. I'm like a miscarried baby, he says. What does he mean by that? I honestly don't know. I thought about this a lot this week. I don't know what that means, except for it's possible that what he means is like all the other apostles had this complete gestation period. They got to spend three years with Jesus where they were developing knowledge of him and a relationship with him before they saw him resurrected. Me, I was on this road to Damascus and it was like I got ripped from my mother's wound and there I was. There's something freakish about my existence here. There's, by the way, in the Greek notion of like miscarried baby, there's the notion of physical freak. I'm sort of a freak, he says. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared also to me because I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What's he saying? Like, I didn't come to Christianity. I can totally identify with Paul here. I didn't come to Christianity thoughtfully. I didn't read a Lee Strobel book. I wasn't like reading Francis Schaeffer or Dorothy Sayers and was like, man, I just cannot deal. Or C.S. Lewis. I can't deal with the logical arguments. I've been convinced that Christianity is true. He came to Christianity kicking and screaming. He was pulled down off his donkey in the middle of the road, struck down blind, and told, you're going to be a Christian now, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so when he says, I'm the least of all the, I was the one who persecuted the church. I didn't come to this like the others did. I came to this almost against my will. I came to this because God in his grace grabbed me and said, you, sir, are now a believer in Jesus Christ. I am your Lord, and you are going to follow me for the rest of your life. And that's why he says this, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not by my logic, not by my own reason or strength, have I believed in Jesus Christ as Lord or come to him. It's the Holy Spirit that's called me by the gospel of grace. That's why I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And then he goes on this interesting, which by the way, this is a completely separate sermon. I worked harder than anybody, but it wasn't me. It's the grace of God working in me. I, you know, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's working in me both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God's grace. It's me doing it, but it's God's grace doing it through me. But it's still me doing it, but it's still God's grace doing it through me. But the point, though, here for this morning is, is that the resurrection is a physical reality, but it's only grasped and believed when God works in your heart to believe it. Christianity is completely rational in the sense that any ordinary event, given presuppositions, is rational. But it's also wildly, uncontrollably powerful, spiritually, physically and spiritually. And the, and, and the two of them don't play off each other. Why, why do we as Christians, we sort of neuter and make ourselves weak by playing them off against each other and then not embracing either one? Like we don't want to be, like we don't want to be really sort of rational. We don't want to think of our faith. A lot of us talk about it. Well, you, you, you can't prove any of this. You just sort of have to leap out in faith. We don't want to really do the hard work of like 
examining the Bible for its truth and embracing it as our own. But we also don't want to be really sort of spiritual. Those are the crazy people, you know. Those are the, those are the weirdos who are like, they're way too into it. And so what we are, we're this we're sort of weird, emasculated mixture of we don't really believe it. We're not really excited about it. We're not even actually really sure why we're showing up here every Sunday morning. Instead of like embracing both of these realities, it's completely rational. And at the same time, completely supra-rational. Not irrational, supra-rational. We're convinced of it by the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who are unbelievers this morning, and maybe, I don't know if you're thinking about Christianity, maybe you're thinking about Christianity and thinking, uh, you know, is this something I'm maybe a little bit engaged by it, maybe a little bit disturbed by it. I'm sort of trying to grapple with it. Let me offer this up to you. Does this not, does this dual reality of the resurrection and what it means for us as humans, that God has become a human in history, it's incredibly physical and rational. And at the same time, he gives us connection to that by the power of his Holy Spirit from something outside of this physical universe. Doesn't this, message, doesn't this actually make sense of your reality? Like, the, the, and I kind of hinted around at this two weeks ago. There's these two sort of like warring factions ideologically that you're going to grapple with in your life as a human being. And one is materialism. This desire that, like, and we all feel like this. Like, if you have enough money in the bank, you can relax at night. If you have enough things, if you have enough people around you, you can be secure. And we're also, maybe not a lot of us, but we're all, as this is, there's always, the culture is always shifting. There's also this impulse for like, no, physical things aren't important. Spiritual reality is important. We were at an event last night, and Angela and I were talking with a couple of friends of ours about, um, what's her name? Marie Kondo, that, the joy of, what's his, say it again, I'm sorry, it's bad, this is bad preaching, by the way. Sparks. I'm asking my wife to tell me stuff. The joy of, uh, Sparks. The life-changing joy of tidying up. Okay, good. So, and we were talking about like, so she, you know, if, if you've read the book, which I haven't, I refuse to do it. If you watch the show, which I haven't, I refuse to do it. But you'll see, you know, it's a spiritual thing for, you give thanks to your old socks before throwing them away. You greet your house. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up Marie Kondo, the life change. And her, and her point is like, you have to get rid of stuff. You have to clear out the stuff in your life in order to experience real joy. That's a real non-Christian impulse in the culture today is that we as Americans are too materialistic. We're, we're bound too much to food and drink and sex and houses and cars and money. And really, you need to be liberated from these things. And what I want to say to those of you who are like grappling with Christianity is, doesn't Christianity avoid both of these things? Doesn't it make sense of both parts of these rea- this reality of your life? Think about your, think about your closest relationship. Think about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse or your best friend. There's something physical there. There is conversations and hugs and shared meals and car rides together. And you can see them and you can hear them. And it's very physical. But you know in that relationship that there's something there that transcends two warm bodies talking to each other. Just listening, to another example, just listening to This American Life recently, and uh, one of the, their science reporters was discussing free agency. Like, 
he, and he comes to the, humans don't have free will. We are a combination of chemicals interplaying with each other inside of here, neurons firing. We are prisoners of our biology. And he talked to a, 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 a professor, a psychologist, uh, no, 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 a philosopher who wrote a textbook about the, the, the that free will is an illusion. And he says to them, so why do I feel like I have free will? And the, the professor says, that is, that's the, that's the issue is that you feel like you can choose, but you actually can't. You're an animal. You do what your instincts say to do. It's, it's completely an illusion. And what I want to say to those of you who are actually real human beings and haven't given in to that side of the philosophy or to this side of the philosophy is does not Christianity make sense of both of these parts of your reality? You are a physical being. You are a physical being who loves food and drink and sex and work and, re- and relationships and recreation. But there's something more to you than that, and you know that. There's something more to your relationships than that, and you know that. And if you will go to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will find both of those things. You will find the physical universe validated, not because it's physical, but because God in his infinite, almighty, supernatural, supernatural, Holy Spirit power makes it real, makes it completely real. Believe it. It's God's truth. Amen.